Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have joined forces to battle evil, the newest heroes joining the champions of the Golden Age, presenting Tales of the Justice Society of America. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. I am Scott Gardner. And I am Michael Bailey. Hey, how's it going? I don't really want to answer that right now. (laughs) (laughs) I have had the... Not the worst week I've ever had, because there's been a couple others that have been pretty bad. But this this was one of those things that happens every once in a while... Uh, that just my personal life takes a nosedive and things just aren't going the way they should. So that's why I'm glad I have this, because this will cheer me up and make me happy. Though I don't know, because I, I, I'm doing the synopsis on this story, and you're doing the one for Batman Family next week, and I think you won. <laughs> so far, um, I, I read the first one, which was uh, Batman Family number 17. We'll be covering, what is it, 17 through 20. Yeah, something of like that, that series, and so far I've only read just the first one, um, number seventeen, and I gotta say it was all kinds of awesome. So you you may be right, you may be on the uh, the losing end of that bargain, my friend. I'm sorry. That's okay. It's all good. Well, what we're covering this week is we gave the Huntress her due by covering the DC Super Special or whatever it was called, because I can never keep track of that. All those. It's, it's like trying to keep track of those Marvel books that were reprints. Superstars, like, I think. DC yeah. Superstars, number you know, 17. Like, like Marvel's greatest stories and mm-hmm. amazing adventures and stuff like that, which all ended up being just freaking uh, reprint books. But what we're covering this week is Showcase Comics, number 97 through 99. And this was... What I believe was an attempt to get Power Girl her own series, mm-hmm. but through the course of the three issues, gave her origin as well. And I'm going to be completely honest with you, this thing doesn't make a lick of sense. There are parts of it that are like, okay, uh, you know, they're trekking along, we got, a, we got a pretty decent story, and there ostensibly is a story through all three issues that is resolved in the third part. It's just this thing takes a detour in the second part that made me go, what is going on in this book? So the artistic teams for this, Paul Levitz wrote all three issues. Joe Staten penciled all three issues. Uh, Joe Orlando, who had a hand in creating Power Girl uh, for All-Star number 50, 58, excuse me, uh, inked the first part. Dick Giordano inked the second part. So this is the bare-bones synopsis. Uh, One of the things I think is cool is in one of these, uh, Jerry Conway is is alternately called Godfather and Creator in the third part, which I was very surprised by. It has this big Created by Jerry Conway uh, logo right near the Power Girl logo. So that was cool. 
So in the first part, Power Girl's fighting a bunch of armored thugs and helping out the cops. She beats them and is subsequently assaulted by the uh, press, especially this one guy, uh, Andrew Vinson, which also which kind of looks like Andrew Venison, which I'm kind of confused about. But she doesn't take this very well. In fact, she flies Andrew up to the roof of a building and leaves him there saying, you know, leave me the fuck alone. So she flies off. Andrew follows her. She takes a nap. And this is where we get the first part of her origin, where she is part, she is from what they call Krypton 2. This is my first problem with this story. I don't like the first Krypton being referred to as Krypton 2. I know Earth 2 is considered Earth 2, but this is kind of silly. There was no Kandor or Brainiac on this Krypton. So Kandor, Kandor suffered earthquakes just like the rest of of the uh, of the planet. And while Jor-El is busy building his ship that he's going to put his wife in, but then his wife convinces to put baby Cal in, he sends the schematics to Zor-El, who, for some reason, goes, this is a great design. I think I'm going to fuck with it a little bit. So, so she and Cal are both launched as Krypton explodes. And unfortunately, because of whatever Zor-El did to her ship... It takes a much slower route, and she's placed into kind of a form of suspended animation. So she wakes up, Andrew watches her fly off, and then suddenly goes, what? As something comes into his field of vision. Power Girl heads back into Gotham City and again fights the gang, or more of the gang, that she was fighting before. And takes them down. Everything's great. Uh, the press come up again, give her a hard time. She stomps the ground, knocking them all back. And, <laughs> and one of the reporters says, you know, well, we might as well pack it in. Andrew Vincent's got the, you know, the lock on you. And she's like, no, he doesn't. They're like, are you sure? And suddenly Andrew Vincent comes flying up in armor and attacks her. And that's the end of part, part one. So part two, or do you want to take these one at a time? Uh, I, you just uh, one thing I would like to point out that uh, wasn't in my notes, but you got me to thinking about it was the Krypton two thing bothered me too, and I couldn't really put my finger on why it just kind of does. But uh, hearing you say the name Krypton two suddenly put me in mind of Krypton two from a Silver Age story where Superman actually recreated Krypton. Or something like that. Do you, do you know the story I'm talking about? I'm pretty sure it's drawn by Wayne Boring, if I remember properly. I, I'm not familiar with that one, oddly enough. Yeah, it was... Uh, he he recreated it, or he found another one out in space or something. God, I'd, I'd have to look that up now. But yeah, it, I, it's another one of those things that I think would potentially add great confusion to the children reading a, you know stuff like this back in you know back in the 70s. So, so like I said, do you want to take these one at a time, or do you want to, um, do you want to go through the whole thing and then talk about the story as a whole? I honestly, I don't think I have enough notes to do it one at a time. So I would say let's let's do the whole thing and then go back and kind of look over it. All righty. So in the second part, Power Girl is fighting the armored Andrew Vinson, who is just like, hey, I'm not in control of this thing at all. And the armor starts talking. The fight goes through Gotham City. We get page upon page upon page of battle. And finally, she 
takes Andrew out of the the armor and it transforms back into her ship. Meanwhile, an officer who's kind of acting funny goes back to the evidence locker, uh, evidence room of the Gotham City Police Department and kills one of the officers, attacks another, and it turns out that this guy is Brainwave, who ha- is the head of the armored thugs that Power Girl was fighting in the previous issue. So Andrew and Power Girl head back to the field where she was just taking a nap because Power Girl doesn't have a secret identity. She has nowhere else to go. So if she's not living at JSA headquarters, she's apparently hanging out in this park. So she explains to Andrew, after much prodding, that she has a symbiotic relationship with her ship. Whatever her father did to it made the ship give her, as she was flying on her 60-year trek through space, an entire life on Krypton where she was with her parents and had like robot friends and went to the zoo and even went to the Kryptonian equivalent of a high school prom. And Andrew's like, wow, that's, that's really fucked up. I mean, he doesn't say that, but that's essentially (laughs) the attitude he has for the entire thing. It would have been awesome if he had said it though. (laughs) Like, man, you got issues. So the ship grabs her, Puts her, put, puts her inside it and tries to basically reform that connection they had when they were flying through space. And she fights it and fights it. And the harder she fights it, the more the ship tries to make her want to live this fictional life. It's kind of like the, the VR world that Impulse lived in in Flash. And meanwhile... Brainwave is at his headquarters saying, you know, well, I'm going to get back at Power Girl, I'm going to get back at the JSA, and I'm going to get back at the JSA through Jay Garrick, who has conveniently given out his secret identity. And he watches Jay Garrick and Alan Scott, that that Brainwave says, hey, he kind of looks like Green Lantern, walk into their building and he swears revenge. So Power Girl escapes from the ship, heads to the Superman Museum, and gets sucked back into the ship, but Andrew, thinking quickly, uses a holographic machine to peg the ship with images of the real Krypton, and apparently this causes some kind of feedback loop that allows Power Girl to escape, and she destroys the ship. Meanwhile, she thanks Andrew, is very uncomfortable by this because she's not used to thanking people, and says that she doesn't know how to have a real life, but you know what? she wants to try. So that's the end of the second part. So then we get into the third part, which makes a little more sense where brainwave steals Keystone city. As all of this is happening, Karen star is being led around her new, uh, her new job by Andrew Vinson. And let me see this dude's name because it's kind of weird. I apologize. Ginsburg. Uh, who owns this computer technology firm, and thanks to Wonder Woman's teaching computer thingy, she now knows everything about programming and is an expert on the subject of software and computers in general. So the guy's leading her around, showing her where she's going to be looking, when suddenly she hears the distress call, sneaks off, and turns into Power Girl. The Ginsburg is all like, what the hell's going on? Meanwhile, Andrew covers for her. So she transforms into, so she's 
transformed into Power Girl. She flies out to where Keystone City used to be. Brainwaves this giant cranium appears over and says that he is going to take each city of people uh, inhabited by a JSA member unless every accursed member of that team is surrendered to to him for execution. Power Girl shows up, fights the machine for a little bit, it kills some soldiers, before she finally says, okay, take me and stop hurting these people. So Brainwave takes her. (laughs) Meanwhile, he's got Jay Garrick trapped in an anti-vibratory glass, and he's... He's got Alan Scott in a wooden, like circular thingy. I don't quite know how to. It's like a dome. It's it's like a like a like a glass sphere, but it's got wood all over it so that he can't <laughs> escape. And yes, I just came dangerously close to saying that Alan Scott has wood. So she he traps Power Girl in her own sphere, and she keeps pounding and pounding and pounding. And finally, she escapes, beats up all of Brainwave's men, and he releases this giant green thing, kind of like a Hulk-type creature, uh, that is the antithesis of him, whereas he is all intellect. This deadly creation is pure physical power and hungers only for death. So she and pa- Power Girl and this thing tussle. Meanwhile... Power Girl throws one of Brainwave's men at the creature, and it starts attacking them. So finally, she gets, uh, she convinces Brainwave to let everyone go, and he says, the price for the release will be your promise that I go free. And green, and he lets them go, and Green Lantern's like, I don't fucking think so. Traps Brainwave in a green sphere. They return Keystone City to its proper place, and they all fly off together. With Power Girl thinking, you know something, friends, I might ju- I might just get to like Earth after all, and that's it. That's pretty much it, guys. If you think you're missing something, you're not. <laughs> if no. you can, if you buy the trade that was released right around the time of Infinite Crisis that has this story and the four issue JSA classified story. That's probably your best bet for reading that, because at least at the end of that, you're going to get a really good Power Girl story. This thing makes it makes sense, but it's not very good. And it's very disappointing because I like Power Girl and I think she deserves a, a proper origin, like something good, something like 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 the Huntress. The Huntress had a great origin. It had tragedy in it. It had, you know, echoes of why she is the daughter of the Batman. You know, her mother dies. You know, if you're, if you're going to be a Bat character, one of your parents is kicking off. More than likely, <laughs> eventually both. That's just how it works. Happened to Tim Drake. Happened to Helena Wayne. So with Power Girl, we get, essentially, we get Paul Levitz trying to be head trippy that, when, if I'm reading this right, and I think I am, as she was traveling to Earth, she was living in, like, virtual reality and thinking that she was on Krypton. Right. I think she'd be more fucked up coming out of that and realizing that that was all a lie. Right. And be angrier than she was. I don't I, – I, I, just, I just don't think it works. I think it's a really sucky origin for her. You know, the interesting part is that she and – the Earth 2 Superman are roughly the same age, but because her aging was slowed uh, through the 60-year trek to Earth, she came out younger. 
So there's a little bit of resentment because of that, because she's just as old as he is, but he's the one telling her what's what. And they kind of brought that into the new Kara Zor-El when they reintroduced her in the pages of Superman Batman, where she was actually sent to Earth to take care of of young Clark because she was like 16 years old when, when Krypton died. Right. So that they could have played with, but no, he has this whole thing where the ship is stalking her essentially and, and wanting her for its own. And it's really creepy. It like makes no sense. And this character of Andrew Vinson, there isn't much character there. It's like, he's supposed to, I guess he's supposed to be a love interest. Doesn't he eventually become her boyfriend at least for a time? Yeah, but that's only mentioned in, like, the pages of the Huntress backup stories in, uh. in Wonder Woman. You know, they they don't have, they didn't have anything to do with her, as we saw in All-Star Squadron. Or not in All-Star Squadron. <laughs> Can you tell I want to get to that series? Uh, in All-Star <laughs> Comics and in Adventure. Because, we, you know, we didn't hear hide nor hair of this guy. And then he kind of shows up in... Um, in the, the the Huntress backups, but by the time we get to Infinity Incorporated, it's it seems like Star Spangled Kid is trying to get back up with her again. Right. So, again, it, it's like they didn't give us anything to really latch onto for a, a Power Girl ongoing. Whereas the Huntress, you had everything to latch onto. I wonder what the reception was of these three issues, you know, of this story arc, because if it wasn't well received or it was, you know, received, you know, just as mediocre or whatever, that may have put the kibosh on, you know, her being more prominent. Because I I think the two great things that that came out of this all-star revival, I, I think you and I both agree that it was Power Girl and the Huntress. Uh-huh. And the Huntress went on to a, a, a you know some you know some bit of of fame and and popularity in that with her backups and special appearances and all, but Power Girl really didn't. I mean, she had this, and then she she came back and she was a player on the team, but she never really got the the solo spotlight again, and that's that's a shame because I think she is a character with with great potential especially this incarnation of her, you know, the, the pre-crisis incarnation. And I, I'm really wondering now if it wasn't this showcase appearance that, uh, that hurt her chances for, you know, what the Huntress got. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's just really dis- uh, disappointing. It is. It I is. remember, I remember the first time I read this, I kind of liked the story. But man, reading it this time, I was just like, man, what the what the hell is going on in front of me? I, just, I I'm just it's just it was it wasn't a complete waste of my time, but it kind of feels like that. If that makes any sense. Well, ninety seven's the only one I actually own. Um, the only you know the only paper issue I actually have. So I had read this a long, long time ago and didn't really remember it very well. But this is the first time I've read the complete three-issue arc. And I had been trying to track this down on the cheap for years. Good luck. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it goes for for pretty hefty prices. And I have to say, I'm actually really glad now that I didn't find it and didn't waste my money because I think I would have been been ticked off. I think I would have felt really gypped 
you know, unless I found it for 50 cents or something, I think I would have felt took because I really didn't, it's not that I didn't like it. I just didn't really get anything out of it that, you know, it didn't really seem to add much. It was, uh, it was substandard for the, you know, versus the other stories that she was appearing in at the time in All-Star that I, I really did get a kick out of that. I, I thought they were, they were solid. This just, it it doesn't really seem to have the same feel. It doesn't seem to jive very well with the with the story she was appearing in in All Star. And I was really disappointed with the art. I was in the first issue. I think it gets better over the course. By by the by the time we get to ninety nine, I thought the art was pretty good. But yeah, in this first issue in ninety seven, I don't know if it's because the the Staten Orlando mashup just didn't work, but there's something wonky with it that, yeah, I agree. I didn't care for it at all. Yeah. The perspectives are way off in a lot of the panels, and Power Girl herself just isn't attractive in that yeah. first issue. But uh, I think by the time we got to 99, I think it looks a little bit more like um, the well, art that we were getting on All-Star itself at the time. Well, Power Girl looks fine. Brainwave is all over the freaking place with this cranium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like true. sometimes it's like this, it, it, it's almost like he's wearing a big hat, and then other times it's kind of normal looking. Uh, it, it's almost like the art was kind of being substandard because the story was substandard. Could be. The covers yeah. were decent, uh, especially the, the 99 had a great cover. Everyone yeah. looked on that one. Uh, the 98 cover is pedestrian i guess is the best way to refer to it it's her <laughs> fighting a guy in armor and it looks kind of goofy i did however like the state in orlando cover to 97 where she's bursting out of the pages of all star uh, comics and i get the feeling that that showcase presents was tacked on to the top and maybe at one point this was supposed to be power girl number one could be it could very yeah, well be Especially since it says exploding into her own action-packed uh, series, but yeah, kind of disappointing. The whole thing with Brainwave was okay. It was probably the best we've seen him because it was best, definitely better than All Star '58 and '59. Um, uh, the uh, we actually get a repeat of Hostess ads in '97 yeah. and '98. It's the Chinchilla one that we had so much fun with. <laughs> that I now have a nice print of, thanks to Alan Leach. And in the uh, in issue 99 is the people dropping in the elevator and Superman giving them most pies just, just, to, just to make him happy. Now, there are some good ads, because we haven't talked about the ads in a really long time. No, we have not. Um, most of these we've talked about already, because we've gone through the months that these books came out. But there is... In issue 97, and I'm leafing through, yes, it's issue 97, a full-page Al Milgram make way for the explosive first issue of Firestorm. Oh, yeah. And it looks absolutely awesome, bell-bottoms on um, Ronnie Raymond and all. Yeah, just just absolutely gorgeous. And we got a nice, another nice full-page Superman versus Muhammad Ali ad, which is really, uh, really cool to look at. Um... In in ninety eight, I believe it's ninety eight. There was an interesting addition to the Daily Planet page. Uh, the Daily Planet page in that in that issue covered the upcoming Steel series, which we'll be talking about in a couple episodes, I think. Uh, but it had Lana Lang's Comics World, where she talks about upcoming books, and I'm like, that's kind of interesting. I actually think that's kind of cool. 
didn't she, she I think didn't they change the name of that at one point and it was more like a or maybe I'm thinking of the Lola what was it Lola Burnett or whatever her name was it was like a gossip like a fake gossip column type of thing that I don't remember but uh I, I know who you're talking about though cuz Lola Burnett was the um was a, was would you even call her a supporting character in Superman since she really didn't have too much to do with him she was like a peripheral yeah character. She, was like, she was something that a character that like Morgan Edge kept losing to other TV stations. Right. So, <laughs> so that's all that there was basically to that. Uh, in the in the last issue, uh, kind of well, we in the last issue, I will say this: in '99 on page five, we do get uh, some more state and almost nudity as uh, mm-hmm. as Karen Starr takes off her clothes to turn into the Power Girl outfit, and that's that's always good to see. Apparently, she uh, does not wear a bra, which, then again, if you have super tits, I guess maybe you don't have to. You know, you don't have the whole gravity thing working and all that, so. Well, everything on her defies gravity, apparently. Awesome. <laughs> but, yeah, there, there, there's not a whole lot of good good ads or anything. There is a published Oriole uh, regarding the Superman versus Muhammad Ali thing from Jeanette Kahn, so that was kind of cool to see. But... Yeah, it, it, it's 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 kind of weird that Power Girl got three issues, and yet it felt like there was more to the Huntress's origin, which was seventeen pages. Right. Uh, just kind of disappointing. Again, like the cover to the, the to ninety seven and ninety nine, but I really don't have that much to say about this. I really don't. Let me see about the what uh, what other notes have I got here. Um... I started out being very nitpicky, and then I thought, well, you know, after I got through the first issue, I realized that the entire story was going to be so wonky that that we could end up stretching out to, like, a ridiculously long episode if I nitpicked every single goofy thing that I saw, since it's predominantly a very goofy story to begin with. Yes. But one thing that did bug me, only because this kind of thing drives me crazy every time I see it in comics, and I see it quite a lot, is, okay, you've got a superhero, like, say, Superman, or in this instance, Power Girl, or The Flash, or somebody who's super fast, right? Uh The bad guy whips out a gun, shoots either the hero, and it ricochets toward an innocent bystander, or he shoots at an innocent bystander, one of the two. The hero, who is faster than a speeding bullet, streaks after the bullet, catches it, stops it so the innocent bystander doesn't get killed, and then when they look up, the bad guy's gone. That would mean that the bad guy is faster than a speeding bullet. It doesn't work in this instance. These are just thugs, right? Uh-huh. But she catches the ricocheting bullet, and by the time she's done, on page four of the first issue, they're, they're basically like, oh, well, he got away while you were catching the bullet. And it's like, how did, how did he do that? <laughs> how the hell does that happen? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that, that kind of thing drives me absolutely crazy. But, uh, I do think the art ramps up in each uh, sub- subsequent part. You know, I think it's very weak in '97. I think it's a lot better in '98, and I think it's uh, I think it's up to Staten's usual uh, awesomeness by the uh, by the last issue, '99. And I love the uh, splash page, page uh, 14 of issue '99, where she's fighting the big green monster. That was oh, actually yeah. pretty cool. Uh, pretty cool splash, I thought. Beyond that, I would have to say, you know, 
using using the patented Scott one word review meth- method, I would have to say that this rates a meh in my book. So there you go. M e capital M e h meh 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 meh. Oh man. Oh, well, that was a lot shorter than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> These uh, stories, all three of these, are reprinted in Power Girl trade paperback from 2006. And uh, why don't we take a short break and we'll come back with some uh, listener feedback. Sounds good to me. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, The Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Riley should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all of its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at Amazing Spider-Man. Dot Libsyn dot com. To him, life is a great big hang-up. Wherever there's a hang-up, you'll find the Spider-Man. Just who the hell are you? He's James T. Kirk. Don't you read history? What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? 
violate the treaty, Captain? Red alert! All hands, battle stations! This is Captain Kirk. Incorrect. Can we just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack. All hands, battle stations. Mondays available the second Monday of every month at two true freaks And in true Chris Honeywell fashion, hey, we're back. <laughs> I figured you'd like that. We're just going to go through a couple of the emails. I uh, decided to start putting it at the end of the episode. Uh, just as an experiment, see how people like it, dislike it, however. Uh, I guess I'll go first with uh, Guy Love. No, that not that kind from Joe Anthrax. <laughs> what a great name. Actually, his name is Sean Angle. Sean Angle. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, he, he says, Dear Scott and Mike, thank you both for taking up the mantle in the vein of Michael's From Crisis to Crisis podcast with the JSA. From my youth, I remember going over to my grandmother's house where my cousin was staying and pouring through his issues of All-Star Comics. I loved the idea of, of the Golden Age heroes being the precursors to the modern Super, friend hero, Super Friends heroes I grew up watching and reading. I am not the avid collector that either of you are. Let's face it, not many people are the avid collectors, either Scott or I are. <laughs> and believe me, that's not bragging, that's just admitting to our hopeless addiction. But the, but the way you are able to describe the comics in such detail, I don't feel as if I'm missing out on anything not having the issues in front of me. Well, that's good to hear. That's really good to hear, actually. I'm kind of glad. I worry about that sometimes. I don't know about you. Yeah, yeah, I do, actually. Uh, the show brings back fond memories of a time when comics didn't have to be about supervillain rape, team members boinking each other, or the goddamn Batman. <laughs> and even though this era of comics was not without its goofiness, it was oftentimes able to tell compelling stories that didn't feel the need to be extended out to six issues in order to fill a trade. That being said, I wanted to get the reason behind this email. Why I have such a love for the character of Guy Gardner. In episode 18, Scott mentioned that he liked the character, but always thought of him as kind of a jerk with a chip on his shoulder. I would submit to, the, to you that if you found out that the only reason you weren't chosen to wield a weapon limited only by your will, willpower was because you were further away from some other schlub, you'd be pissed too. Guy was passed over for being the Green Lantern of Sector 2814 because Abam Sir was too fucking lazy to go that extra mile and grab the fearless human that wasn't going to turn out to be an introspective panty waste. Sorry, Hal, maybe you picked up too much of that hanging out from hanging around with Ollie. <laughs> 
moving to the JLI years, Guy furthered my enjoyment of him by becoming the stereotypical right-winger. Yes, at the time, I was only beginning to understand politics and probably would have agreed with people that Guy was a jingoistic oaf. But having recently turned 40 and firmly entrenched myself in the same camp as Guy, I look back on the Giffen de Mateus run and overlook the mocking that he received. Looking at the time we are now in politically, I enjoy a character who is a more conservative, in quotes, Reagan-loving ideal. I'm not certain how Michael feels, but from Scott's letters to Jeffrey about Superman number 22 and the Obama slip from Back to the Bins number 50, I think he might be in the same camp as well. Um, yes and no. See, the problem is, is that, you know, he's he's not he's at the extreme, though. He He's way past, you know, being a conservative to where he's I would put him in the, the fringe of the the right wing wackos you know what i mean and yeah. I, that's that's my problem with one of my many problems with the way he was portrayed in the 80s and 90s particularly if you look at the um it's that story where superman gets elected president it was one of the armageddon oh, 2001 yeah. stories look at the way they write that stern writes him in that no i'm not knocking stern he's probably my favorite comic book writer but he writes guy very stereotypically like right wing conservative wacko in that one. And I don't like that. I, I don't care for that portrayal because I'd say that was a problem with Stern in general. It's like the only problem I have with him is he 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 kind of wrote Guy the same way in the Death and Life of Superman novel. Mm-hmm. And Superman's reaction to that was, well, I just don't understand why he's like that, you know. You know, he, he he's going too far, and I'm like, he's just voicing a different opinion than you, dude. That's what teammates are supposed to do. Right. That's what makes you a balanced team. Uh, that's the only problem. Roger Stern, favorite Superman writer ever. But he had a tendency to make Superman too good sometimes. Like, always right, where I, I think sometimes maybe... It's a good story if Superman's kind of doubting what he's doing, not like his his entire mission, but like something specific, like coming across someone like Guy Gardner, who's a little more extreme than he is and thinking, well, what what do how do I feel? And and hopefully coming to the conclusion that, well, we need people like Guy, just like we need people who are completely on the opposite end of the spectrum, because between that, we're going to get something that works. But that's just my opinion. Right. I like Guy from that era. I really do. Um, moving forward, I really enjoyed the revamp of Green Lantern and how the writers were able to give uh, great story arcs to all three of the Earth GLs. I especially loved the Guy-centered story, A Guy and His Nort, nice play on a boy and his dog, a fun four-part epic that dealt with Guy and the core, most inept GL, Nort. And, of course, the eventual Hal having to be a dick in issue 25 by fighting Guy over who should be Earth's only GL was another great moment, as it showed that even in defeat by the hands of a douchebag, Guy was a man of his word and gave up the reign. This led to a solo book where Guy was such a badass that he trained with Lobo, went to Oba Oa to get Star Sinestro's ring to use for his own, and overpowered Sinestro's will to obtain the ring. That's when Guy got robbed of his ring again when Hal went cuckoo over Coast City. He didn't sit around moping. He basically went to the Savage... Uh, 
guy didn't sit around moping. Excuse me. He basically went to the Savage Land and fought Nazi dinosaurs. Fact check me here, Michael. Am I as I'm writing this from memory? I think you're right about that. Actually, I haven't read those yet. Um, yeah, this led to the whole warrior phase of the character. But even Star Trek had it has its Spock's brains moment. That is true. Of course, our buddy Jeff Johns retconned all of that with GL Rebirth, and we have the good old guy back who has been a pr- uh, perfectly fleshed out in GL Core by Peter Tomasi. Seriously, in the latest issue of GLC, Guy uses the Tholian web to try to stop the Black Lanterns from reaching Earth. He, u- he fucking uses a Star Trek reference. What character is that fucking cool in a crisis to reference that and even know what episode number? <laughs> But I guess the real reason I liked Guy was due to a certain artist that depicted him in his GL stories and the first part of his solo run. He drew a sort of stylized stylized cartoony version of the character that wasn't as drawn as realistic as the other characters. I was pleasantly surprised to find out that the artist I so enjoyed was none other than Joe Staten, the man behind the art in the books you are gracing us with reviews of. Now that I know the connection between the two, it makes me want to hunt down the issues or trades that you have been discussing in order to enjoy more of the artwork that depicted my favorite GL. Well, seeing as as it's about 4.30 in the morning, I'm probably making little to no sense by now. Just want to thank you both for giving us all such a fun look back at a great superhero team and a great artist drawing it. Sincerely, Sean Engel. P.S. Yes, sadly, I am the same Sean Engel who subsided the fan fiction stuff for Chris's media masochist. Please don't hold that again. Uh, against me, <laughs> PPS, tell Chris that Cronenberg rocks. <laughs> that was a long one. That was a one, long one. Well, I, I, really... I will agree with him about uh, I loved the uh, the GL stuff of the era he's talking about where Joe Staten was the artist. Uh, and that was actually the only time I, I was a faithful Green Lantern uh, reader was, you know, pre-crisis anyway, was during that, that era because I really liked what Staten was doing with those characters. And I even liked... Uh, Guy Gardner during that time, just because I liked the way that he drew him, even though I I didn't care for the character. I just, up until recent times, I just haven't liked the way his character was portrayed. He was just a character I found extremely grating. And it wasn't really until, like he mentions here, the, the Jeff Johns stuff, and then eventually uh, when he was in GLC with uh, Peter Tomasi writing, it seemed like they they took the best elements of his personality and made a real character out of him rather than just some caricature or something or whatever he had been before. I just he he was just a character that I, I just could not follow and, and get behind. There was just something about his personality makeup that that just irritated me to no end. But I'm I'm glad that they were able to you know, to redeem him or whatever and make him, make him a character that actually is now interesting to me and, and fun to read. I, I like what they've done with him since just, I don't, I just don't care for his earliest stuff. Well, I actually kind of liked that, um, Steve Englehart era as well. Uh, mainly for the art, but more to the fact that especially during the crisis, he was, he was wrong, but, at the same time, he was charged with the Guardians to do what he was doing in regards to um, 
the you know the antimatter world. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know if you've read those recently. I read those a couple weeks ago, and uh, oh, not a couple weeks, a couple months ago when I was preparing for uh, Tom DJ and I did a Hal Jordan retrospective or the first part of one, and I read my run of Green Lantern for the first time, and started with right after he came back to Earth because I'm going to be completely honest with you that run of Green Lantern where he's off in space for a year bores me to fucking tears. It's, it's oh God, not not the best of writing, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about it, but uh, well, so, do we want to jump on to the next one. Yeah, it's by our good friend Jose Rivera. Awesome. All right, this one is uh, entitled Episode Twenty Three: The End of an Era. He says, "Hey guys," he says, "So we finally hit the end of an era with this episode." When the show first started, I decided to go out and pick up the two trades that collected these adventures. It was fun. I could read along with you guys, minus the ads, but now I'm hoping uh, I have enough to get me by until you guys start reading All-Star Squadron. What also makes this bittersweet is that the overall silliness will fade from the stories. I'm sure uh, you guys will have uh, a lot to talk about, and I'm also sure that along the way there will be some head-scratching moments. But come on, you can't top Underground Boogerman and Xanadu. Oh, I don't know. There, I think there's still plenty of wackiness to come on down the road, as I recall. Especially when it comes to Robot Man. Yeah. Since I've always found it interesting that the McCarthy hearing bled into the post-crisis continuity for the JSA. I remember first reading about it in the beginning of a Hawkworld comic. Whoa, really? He says, you know what? I actually love that this stayed in continuity. If you mention the McCarthy hearings or any of its ilk, there's a feeling of how in the hell did someone get away with this? Part of the reason I've enjoyed the JSA disappearing in the 50s was the fact that they, uh, that they stood up to them. They knew something was wrong, and they knew if they revealed their secret identities, they would not only put their families and loved ones at risk, but they'd also be at the whim of the government. To see the JSA look them square in the eyes and say, you know what, no, this isn't right, you're not right, so we're going to go away for a while. When an alien invasion comes, when things get too out of hand, or when someone uh, you need someone the most, look back at this moment and think about what could have been had you made a different choice in life. And there they went. Now, I know that's not what Hawkman said, and that's probably more an indictment of how I would have handled the situation, but it's nice to see the JSA did what was right, even if it meant all but retiring. I'll absolutely agree with that. Mm -hmm. He said it worked out in Earth 2 as the JSA eventually reunited, but I have to wonder what would have happened in the post-crisis universe had the whole McCarthy hearing not happened and the JSA had been around in the 50s. Would they have eventually faded away? Again, I'm really glad that something in, uh, introduced in the last story of this era uh, became a really interesting part of the history of the team, and so many great stories came out of it. Some of my favorites came from what James Robinson did in Starman, particularly the Starman of 1951. He said, and the hostess ad, um... Did Green Lantern leave those kids with a monster that seconds ago tried to eat him? <laughs> and another thing, those kids seem to know of Triclops, so why were they hiking around a cave where a known monster is lurking? Triclops looks like he could have uh, had a role on either Puffin stuff or the banana splits. 
And guys, please don't joke about Jeff Johns picking up on this. The last thing we need is Triclops Rebirth, where it'll take Ethan Van Skyver 12 months to do six issues. Can't wait to see where you guys will go next. Jose A. Rivera. You know, he brings up some very interesting points because something that I feel um, is is untapped, potentially awesome territory in DC is the space age. Say uh-huh. from the mid the mid fifties right up until you know right on through say nineteen seventy whatever with the constant shifting timeline putting Superman and Batman having come into their own later and later and later, it seems like there has been a growing gap in the period between the time when the JSA went away, you know, because of the whole McCarthy thing and the new age of heroes, you know, where, where Superman came along and inspired the second wave of, of superheroes, you know, the modern age of heroes. And I would like to see that middle ground territory be tackled. You know, where were the superheroes when, you know, things were going on in that whole era, you know, the, not only the cold war, but as the space race was heating up, how did guys like Alan Scott and Jay Garrick feel when the Mercury 7 became America's superheroes for a time? You know, I'd love to see a miniseries or a maxi series all about that period. You know, you where know, was Alan Scott when, when Apollo 13 was potentially out there dying in space? You know, what, why did he just sit on his hands and not race to their rescue? I'd love to see that territory explored. I'd like to think that they'd look at them as as more of heroes than they are. Yeah, you know, kind of like how Superman looks at the police and the fire and the firefighters and the paramedics. It's like you know these people actually put their life on the line. I'm invulnerable. So I think someone like Alan Scott would look at them, especially as patriotic as these guys are, would be like, "Wow, they're they're doing it." I don't. So. I'd I'd like to think so, but conversely. See, that's Superman, and I love that about Superman. I love that picture. I know the exact one you're talking about where he's looking at that billboard of the firemen and the police, and he says, wow. But that's Superman. I think that there's potential with what we've seen of Alan Scott's makeup and character, and I'm not besmirching him, don't get me wrong, but what we've seen of him in this run of All-Star comics, that he has real human fallibilities and and characteristics that make him up i think a story of you know post-crisis he becomes arguably the most powerful member maybe even the most important member of the you know the the world war ii era all-star squadron yeah and i'd agree with that i think it would be interesting to see a story of him you know, past his heyday, you know, in retirement, in the in the 50s and, and beyond, seeing not necessarily the new generation of superheroes coming along, but the new generation of heroes that, you know, that, that became America's heroes, at least for a time. What, and how did they feel about that? 
And I don't yeah. know. I, I I just I think that there's because I I like that when when sometimes every once in a while like a really interesting series will come along in comics that ties into real historical things, things that really happened and blends them together very well. I mean, Roy Thomas was a master of that sort of thing. Yes. And I would love to see a story that explores, you know, that, that middle ground, because there have been stories that have come out that have taken place in that in-between period between the golden age heroes and the modern age heroes. But to my mind, it's never been truly fleshed out and, and put in stone that this is what happened during these years. I, I think they've purposely steered away from that so that they can continue to have their little shifting scale and not really have to nail things down to dates, which I can understand yeah. that. But, you know, by this point, I think it's, it's pretty well acknowledged or, or, almost common sense that the Superman, you know, the modern day Superman and Batman would have had to come in around, you know, the eighties at the earliest at this point for them to be the ages that they, they would be. So I think you're safe at this point doing stories set in, you know, say the, the mid to late fifties, right on through the sixties and possibly right into the seventies. And, and putting the revival of the justice society now much later, you know, or maybe even, well, let me think it would have to be, it would have to be much later. I was going to say maybe it would still happen when it happened in the seventies, but no, it would have to have happened later because Superman has to be figured in there. Yeah. So, cause the, the JSA couldn't come back you know, couldn't have their revival until Superman came along because he kind of re, you know, not only inspired the new generation of heroes, but isn't he pretty much the reason they came back out of retirement post? Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like he ushered in the new age of, of heroes. So yeah, you're absolutely right on that. So that's a long stretch and it gets longer all the time. But that's a long stretch of time that we're looking at now where there were no heroes on the, you know, the DC Earth. And I would love to see a, a, a series tackle that question. Why? Where did they go? What did they do? How could they sit? You know, I mean, look at how much mileage there was in Superman Returns of how could you leave us? You know, well, here's a, a period where the superheroes went away for what? You know, you're talking 25, 30 years. Where did they go? What did they do? And I would love to see that hard-hitting question of how could you leave us? Especially when, I mean, Jesus Christ, the world was on the brink of nuclear destruction at one point. I mean, literally. And where were the superheroes? I think that's a hell of a of a good series in the making right there. I would love to see Yes, that. sir. Yeah, I would really. Unfortunately, we're going to get legacy, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> All right. I think you've got the next one, sir. All righty. Our next one uh, from our very good friend, Justin Clark. Uh, it's his first email to the show uh, and says, my first email to the show or ramblings of a madman. Because Justin's a madman, a madman. Uh, first, let me start by saying the show is great. I've loved every episode I've heard. Thanks to you guys, I've been introduced to new characters and eras that I do not have the money to look into right now. 
<laughs> Your synopsis of the plot and the nostalgic look at the ads are as good as the books themselves. I might even say better for reasons I'll get to in a moment. Thank you for putting in the time, effort, and love into each and every episode. Now I'm not al- now I may not always email, but I will always be a fan and follow you guys wherever you go. Scott, you can ask Mike if you don't believe me. LOL. <laughs> I'd like to inter- I'd like to stop for a second saying Justin, uh the check is in the mail. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> I feel like we should be paying the guy. Uh, now there's a, now there is a main reason I'm writing this email besides the blatant ass kissing. I took issue with some of the feedback you've been getting about the opinions you've been voicing for the show. First of all, the whole geek cred thing. Now I have not been in the thick of things for a long time. Hell, I would even say I'm not still not very deep into it. As a fan of the medium or the podcast, it doesn't make my opinions any less valid. It just makes it different because of my own point of view. So anyone listening to reading of this email, don't take offense to the opinion of others who don't share yours. Now I know that as geeks, we have been put down by everyone and their dog and given that it's hard not to take things personal when others start talking about the things you love in a negative point of view. Trust me, I'm sure Mike and Scott have better things to do with their time than put a listener down. Now, as far as the poster debate, uh, the poser debate goes, I'll say this. Gave people crap in front of the, in the past for wearing a shirt or, read a, or reading a comic book? Then I say they have no business wearing a shirt from a geek thing they liked. If they didn't make fun then, I would have no problem with them wearing a shirt from the geek movie they liked. Mike and Scott, you may have a differing opinion, and you know what? That's okay. Thirdly, your guys' love of comics and the other things got called into question. I call BS on that. If people want to hear you hating on anything geek out there or episodes of your other podcasts that they can turn to, your love for this stuff shines through in every aspect of the show, from the discussion of the book you read this week to the acting out of the hostess ads, which are freaking hysterical. If you had to take some of the stuff in these books so serious all the time, you would want to put a bullet in your head. I mean, come on, (laughs) Dr. Fate never showing up when he's called for, or the Flash leaving a fight just because his wife said it was time to come home? Come on, you can't tell me that none of the other heroes didn't call them out on that shit. If they didn't, I just say thank God for you guys and the deleted scenes you add in for us. Last but not least, I love Superman. I love Smallville. I have a love-hate relationship with Batman, the Brave, and the Bold. Can the writers stop getting down on their knees and sexually surfacing Batman? That's all I ask. I I love Star Wars. I don't care who shot first. I loved the new Star Trek movie with that guy from Heroes. And I've only been reading comics for a few years. I did not agree with everything that was said, and I sure as hell was not offended. But if you were, I'm sorry, but maybe you need to get over yourself and remember that these two wouldn't be here. So, Mike, Scott, keep up the great work and keep it all coming. I, for one, love every positive and negative moment of it. Your friend and fanboy, Justin M. Clark. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Justin. Thank you very much. That was nice. It's nice to read at the end of the day. It is. It is. You know, I don't ask anybody to to agree with every word that that I utter because I know that I'm, I'm bound to say some positively retarded things from time to time. And I don't ask anybody to to kiss my ass or worship the ground I walk on or anything like that. But at the same rate, you know, when you when you get one that really dogs you out and and really really cuts you down, it you know it, it's hard not to take that shit kind of personal, you know, mm-hmm. especially when 
frankly, when they're wrong, you know, when when they call you out, say, you know, you you hate everything and you're so negative, and uh, why are you doing this? And all you want to do is dogs. You know, I couldn't maintain that kind of hate to do a, a, a you know a podcast weekly just yeah. to hate. I just couldn't. But I'm just saying. I mean, who could do that? I mean, I guess there's people that probably could, you know, that have their hate on week after week, but. You know, neither you nor I got into this because, oh, we hate the fucking Justice Society. We just got to tear them a new asshole every year. No, we, we got into what? this because we both said, wow, we fucking love the JSA, and no one's doing a podcast about Yeah, exactly. Them. Yeah, it, it all started out of, wow, you like the Justice Society? I like the Justice Society. Let's talk about the Justice Society. So, yeah, I mean, it's not – there's no hate involved. And, you know – I, I think we find the positive in no matter how goofy you're. I mean, look at the three issues we just did. Quite honestly, these these three issues, they, you you gotta call a spade a spade. They kind of suck, but we still found positive things to to say and enjoy about yeah. them. I mean, the art still is pretty pretty cool for the most part. And there were things I really enjoyed about it. But Power Girl's a healthy girl. Yes, yes, she she's got those. Yes. She's got those real woman thighs. I mean, it's awesome. <laughs> Real woman thighs. Okay, so have you have you have you seen? Uh, there, there's different variations of them, but basically, it's one of those um, those motivational posters, and it's and it's usually of a full figured woman in her underwear, and it's said that if I if if, if I wanted a woman with the body of a teenage boy, I'd probably just date a teenage boy. Oh no, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> it's basically saying, you know, skinny girls, you know, eat a cheeseburger. Almost. Yeah. So, and and I happen to fully subscribe to that theory. Yes. So yes, there I you go. Too. Yeah. Everyone, take a drink from the the from crisis to crisis listeners. Yeah, I just said there you go. So it's time to take a drink. I I, I dated one of those like super anorexic like scrawny chicks one time years and years and years and years ago, and yeah, she was kind of like. A skeleton, and it was not. It's not cool by me. It's not. <laughs> What's a, up, Skeletor? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> okay, our last one for this episode is going to be from John Wilson, and he writes about the end of the JSA. So, so by random coincidence, my Golden Age DC reading project has reached All Star Comics number four. Soon after reading Adventure Comics 466 for your show, the mission briefing opens with this quote. I've called you here to help the USA fight its internal enemies, spies and saboteurs. America, as you know, allows free speech and free press. But our generosity and liberality is being taken advantage of by undercover, undercover agents of foreign countries. I just find the themes to highly overlap with the McCarthy-esque treatment of the team in their uh, adventure finale. Nice bit of symmetry to their Golden Age history, too, between the anti-spy sentiments of the early 40s that helped galvanize the group to the Red Scare paranoia of the early 50s that brought them to a temporary end. And that's from John Wilson. And you know, he's, he's absolutely right. That that's the kind of the sad thing is that a lot of people who were very patriotic, who were considered American heroes, were dragged before HUAC, you know, the House and Americans Activities uh, Committee, because in 1936, before the war, they hung out with some people, you know, at a communist rally, 
you know, when it wasn't an overly bad thing to be doing so, where people were, you know, because of the depression, were exploring different avenues of political thought. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people uh, had communist ties in the, in the twenties and the thirties. That's mm-hmm. just how it went. It's just, you know, Hey, what's doing tonight? Well, there's a communist rally that's going down the street. So you go down there, your picture gets taken. And 15 years later, some douchebag in Congress is using that to besmirch you just to further their own political ends. You know, that's, that's the real tragedy of it. I mean, and, 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 and fuck that, you know, that shit still <laughs> goes on today. No, I'm dead serious. I am serious as a fucking heart attack. Nothing will piss me off more than somebody trying to paint somebody, uh, you know, as un-American or unpatriotic simply because of something they did in their youth. You know what? I did a lot of stupid shit in my youth. I really did. I went to see bands at the Masquerade in Atlanta that I probably would never admit to going to see simply because they suck so badly. I don't want that shit to be brought. Well, look, the, look at Mike Bailey. He went to a Marilyn Manson concert in the summer of 1997. Obviously, he's not a good American. Fuck that. God. I'm going to get <laughs> off my – I'm going to take this soapbox out of the way because I could really start ranting on, on, on shit that pisses me off politically, and that's not what this show is about. No, that's that's true. I've I've worked very hard not to not to allow myself to do the same thing. I know exactly what you're talking about. But no, I, I, it must have been an interesting time to be alive, you know, to have actually lived through that through that era, because you know, as as much as I think the 1950s must have been a really great time to be alive and be an American and everything, and and I, I look at it. With a certain sense of longing that I wish I had, I, I lived back then. There was also, you know, on the on the flip side, there was a lot of messed up shit that went on too. Well, yeah, and and that was I was kind of the point. It's going to be a weird way to end the episode. That's actually the point of the song "We Didn't Start the Fire" by Billy Joel. Billy Joel was in a recording studio with Julian Lennon, who was turning twenty-one that day, and he was and Julian Lennon was commenting on all the things that happened, you know, and you know, like just in his twenty-one years. And Billy Joel's like, "Well, you know, same with me." And Julian Lennon's like, "You grew up in the fifties. Nothing happened in the fifties." And that inspired Billy Joel to write the song. Hmm. So, um, you know, pointing out, you know, you know, <laughs> a lot of shit did go on. You know, uh, stark weather homicide, children of thalidomide. You know, there, right. you know, pe- people were afraid. My mother, my mother once told me how scary it was uh, around the time of the McCarthy, uh, you know, of HUAC, and then how far he fell during the McCarthy hearings where he tried to take on the army and the army said, nah, okay. That's not literally what they said. (laughs) It's it's an interesting story. I I did a, I did a paper on McCarthy in college and, and, and realizing where he fell was taking it too far. You know, he took it really far, but basically he de- he decided to go after the military in a time where it was just like no, <laughs> <laughs> no. This is the beginning of the indu- the military industrial complex. That's mm-hmm. not the people you know during the fifties during Korea when it was still gung ho America. 
and 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 you served in the army because you were well, you were drafted, but still, you know, it was sort of an honor, right? Then before you know, until Vietnam, where you know, it became less so, unfortunately. But again, not going to get into that. I don't know why I'm getting into it right now. I'm just really fucking tired. <laughs> And apparently I'm amusing the piss out of Scott. <laughs> I just like to to have anybody else be the one ranting and raving for a change and not me. <laughs> I just like the heat taken off of me every once in a while. Well, I guess that's it for this week. That is it for this week. But next week, come back and we will be uh, tackling the uh, Huntress stories that happen in Batman Family 17 through 20. So come back and join us for that. There's some truly awesome stuff to be had. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America.